Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome to Episode 7 of the podcast. I'm Dan Hummel, the Director of University Engagement at Upper House. We're in the depths here of winter in Madison, and at the same time, we're excited for what the new academic semester will be bringing to our community. Classes began here last week, and while most classes are going to be remote in some form, just knowing that hundreds of classes are in session and that new learning is taking place is always welcome news here at Upper House. And we're also excited for our own programs and learning communities that are taking form in the new semester. And you can always check those out at upperhouse.org slash events for all of the information. So one of the perennial topics we address here at Upper House is the faith and science conversation. It's a quite a relevant area for the university community. Of our six core areas of programming focus, one of them is science and technology. On episode four of the podcast, we aired a conversation with Christian apologist John Lennox, who often argues that science and Christianity support rather than undermine each other. And I commend you to go back and listen to that interview if you haven't. But another way to enter into the faith and science space is through the history of science. When we look at the past, we can ask some really first-order questions, one of them being where the idea of an inevitable conflict between religion and science originated. That is not a rel- that's not a new idea, uh, and it has a history of its own. We can also ask things like what terms like religion and science even meant or mean today and how the change in meaning actually feeds into our understanding of the conflict. Our guest for this episode is one of the foremost experts on these questions, particularly from a historical perspective, and he lives here in Madison. James Ungurianu is a historian of science and the author of Science, Religion, and the Protestant Tradition, Retracing the Origins of Conflict, and they came out in 2019. The book will be one of the main areas of the discussion you're about to hear, and there's a link to it in the show notes, but we go much further beyond just uh, the book. James is also a prolific writer on a number of subjects related to religion and science. He's written for Zygon and Church History, both top-flight academic journals, and more popularly in Christianity Today and BioLogos and elsewhere. And he currently works at UW-Madison at the George L. Mossy Program in History as its historian in residence. James and I have known each other for a few years now, uh, first as historians and uh, now as friends. And it was also a delight, hopefully it comes through in the interview, uh, to have this conversation and this extended time to allow James to really lay out a lot of his views on the field of history and the discipline of history, uh, but also his understanding of the history of science and religion and how they intersect. Uh, I came away thinking James is obviously a historian of the best kind, but more to the point, he is a Christian scholar who has thought deeply about how academic research and teaching 
relate to the truth claims of the Christian faith. In the following conversation, we dive into James's biography, which is quite interesting and, might I say, unexpected, uh, his education, and then how he developed his interest in the history of science and the field of history more broadly and chose to pursue advanced training in that. And then, of course, the contours of his book, which we spend a good amount of time on, but an interview just can't capture the complexity that James puts on display in the pages of the book itself. James ends with really a mini-sermon on what it means to be a Christian and pursue knowledge of the world. So this conversation is, for lack of a better term, elaborate, and it's one of the longer ones we've had on the podcast so far, and it was a joy to record. So without further ado, here is an upwards conversation with James Ungurianu. Yeah, so let's just start uh, with some information about yourself and get a little sense of who you are. What is your history with the study of history? Uh, um, so, yeah, uh, a little bit of background. Uh, born and raised in uh, the States, but my parents are Romanian. They emigrated to the States during Ceausescu in the late 1970s. And I think like most immigrants under such circumstances, they had kind of a difficult time finding stability. They moved around a lot. They, from New York, Louisiana, Texas, Florida, before finally settling in in California. And I grew up in, in Sacramento, California, about an hour north of the Bay Area. And honestly, never really uh, saw myself as becoming a historian of science and religion. Um, we struggled a lot growing up. And the last thing on my mind was the intellectual life. Uh, more than anything, my parents got caught up in this idea of the American dream and finding success. And, and um, But um, as a kid, I, I was always kind of artistic. Uh, my brother and I used to draw comic books together and I uh, would come up with storylines and come up with uh, this comic book narrative. And all four years in high school, I, I took art as an elective. I even uh, got a chance to sell a few things at art shows. So my, my last year in high school, um, this was 1999, brought me into the world of computers. Uh, our, our school, our high school had a great computer lab and I started to teach myself uh, AutoCAD software and AutoCAD is uh, software designed for architects. Um, I went to Borders and Barnes and Noble and we used to sit there for hours and uh, reading through the AutoCAD manuals and I didn't, uh, my parents couldn't afford a computer or, or the software. So I sort of taught myself by reading the manuals. Shortly after graduating high school, I, I started uh, working uh, at a small architectural firm, local residential architect, uh, mostly residential housing, subdivisions, uh, drew up all the plans. They were called blueprints back then. You know, you have foundation plans, framing plans, electrical plans, all of it. And it was a lot of fun. Learned a, I learned a lot about the trade. A couple of years after that, I wanted something a bit more challenging. So I applied to a commercial architectural firm. And um, they also did residential uh, design, but also big commercial projects like clubhouses, shopping centers, hotels, uh, religious buildings. But something was missing. I... I didn't really grow up in a church. My, my folks were 
kind of raised in an Orthodox Romanian uh, context, but when they came to the States, they got involved in kind of a Romanian Pentecostal charismatic movement. And I remember they, they would occasionally take us, it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't a regular thing, but they would take us to the Romanian, uh, Romanian churches. And um, I, I have vivid memories of how they, they did prayer during their service. It wasn't kind of individual, you pray to yourself type of thing, but they would all pray in the church out loud. It would go on for maybe hours. Uh, it was, people were praying about everything, about the, the government, about, about their families, about their friends, and it's all in Romanian. And occasionally everybody would get quiet sometimes, and then there would be one person who would start speaking in tongues. And they would usually have like an elder or a the pastor him, himself that would kind of translate that, but then it, it then they would, everything would go quiet again, and then everyone would start. The whole congregation would pray out loud, and it was really uh, kind of strange, a strange thing for, for a kid to experience, I guess. But in hindsight, I see it as kind of a, a really powerful uh, experience now. But it didn't stick. It didn't stick with me. I, I kind of left it um, once I started doing architecture. But at the same time, I felt like something was missing. You know, I was making good money, no longer living with my parents, uh, but I needed something more. And uh, while working as an architectural drafter, I also started taking philosophy courses at a, a local a community college. I began reading Plato and Aristotle, and I found the work of Paul Davies. Paul Davies is an English uh, theoretical physicist, and he wrote a lot of books like God and the New Physics, uh, uh, about Einstein's unfinished revolution, and, and things like that. And I, I really loved it, and I started a book club uh, for those interested in discussing those ideas. And Davies, his books introduced me to the Western religious thought context, mm -hmm. um, including a number of important theologians like St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, Roger Bacon, Francis Bacon and the like. And this became sort of my, my introduction, my, my spiritual awakening, because uh, these writers introduced me to the Bible and the Bible ultimately led me to Christ. And so I knew from an early, early, early on that my, my walk, that a walk with Christianity was not just this feeling of absolute dependence, even though it is that, um, but it's also, it has this rich intellectual history. And at that point, I decided to quit architecture and pursue a degree in philosophy at the University of California, Davis. Unfortunately, the, philosophy, the way the philosophy department worked at Davis at that time, it was very analytical. So I ended up really disliking the program. I guess I just needed more context. I needed more biography. I needed to know the reasons why the philosophers argued the way they did. What was their yeah. motivations? What inspired them? And for the listeners, the sort of the the division within philosophy is between more analytical and more continental uh, philosophy. And I think most of the philosophers that people think of when they think of European philosophers, the the French philosophers or the Nietzsche's. Mm -hmm. Those are the those are the continental philosophers, and so yeah. that's sort of where the big questions of life uh, are being are being asked. Right. I mean, the way Davis at that time, the, the philosophy department, they were they were more interested in breaking down arguments and uh, asking students whether they thought it was it was a, a kind of a solid argument or a reasonable argument. But uh, I remember I used to annoy my my TAs because I was always introducing like historical background into my philosophy papers. You know the historical context of Descartes or Hume, and they didn't like that very much. Okay. Um, so, in order to fulfill that need, I, I added uh, religious studies 
to uh, as a second major at Davis. And the religious studies program at Davis was just absolutely amazing. Great professors, great instructors. And I don't know what it's like now, but back then it was amazing and brought so much. And I read so much during that time. I read the Church Fathers, I read the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, read the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha and some of the most pioneering scholarship on the study of religion. It was it was an incredible time. There was one professor there in particular at UC Davis that encouraged me to look more closely at the debate between science and religion. Her name is Alison Couder, uh, and she's great. And we've stayed connected over the years, and it wouldn't, be, wouldn't surprise me if she's listening. Uh, her research mostly focuses on the re- interaction between religion and science in the West with kind of a special emphasis on the more esoteric elements, you know, things like natural magic or Kabbalah or, or alchemy. And she was one of the last students of Francis Yates. And if you know anything about Yates, she was a Renaissance scholar. She taught at Warburg Institute in London, and she was mostly known for her book on Bruno and the Hermetic tradition, which was published in the 1960s. So it should be no surprise that early on in my academic career, I was also very interested in in the same things. Um, uh, But for my undergraduate degree, I I completed an honors thesis on the patristic period, which is just a fancy way of saying to church fathers and and natural philosophy, looking at how these theologians, these early Christian theologians like St. Augustine and Roger Bacon responded to Greco-Roman philosophy and Arabic theology and the thesis, in a way, was a response to um, uh, sociologist of religion Rodney Stark and his book, For the Glory of God, which published in 2003. Its subtitle reads, How Monotheism Led to Reformations, Science, Witch Hunts, and the End of Slavery. It's, it's a very fun book, but I, at the time, I, I took issue with his emphasis that modern science was founded on a particularly Christian found theological foundation. And I think now I would retract some of my original criticism, but I contended at that time that this particular Christian theology that Stark spoke about was greatly indebted to philosophy and theology outside Christian thought. Again, you have the Greco-Roman influence and the ideas coming from the East and so on. So after Davis, I had the choice between Fuller Theological Seminary and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, uh, My wife and I decided to go to Trinity because most of her family was living in the Midwest at that time, and we wanted to start a family of our own, and it was probably a good idea to have family nearby when when you do such things. And uh, Trinity was an amazing place. Um, The first year there, though, was was very hard for me. I entered the MDiv program and immediately felt sort of lost uh, in the sense that I didn't see it as a good fit for what I wanted to do. I didn't see myself ever using Hebrew, for example. Uh, I loved the Greek courses there, but Hebrew not so much. And I had all these personal assessment courses I needed to take that to me felt like they were designed for a pastor than a scholar in training. But I had great advisors at Trinity, uh, Scott Manich and John Woodbridge, and they encouraged me simply to switch from the MDiv to the MA in church history, and that that did the trick. I mean, I I became a historian of Christian thought and absolutely loved that that history. We took a year off from school. My wife and I went to South Korea uh, to teach English. Coming back to the States in 2013, 
uh, I wanted to get back into it and start working on my PhD. And the first person I thought about working with was Ron Numbers. And incidentally, we, when we moved back to the States, we moved back to Madison, Wisconsin. My family had uh, all, most of them had, uh, my wife's side of the family had moved to, to the area. So naturally I wanted to work with Ron um, at UW-Madison who was, who is a historian of science there. He's retired now. Unfortunately, actually, he retired several years ago. So when, when, I, when I approached him to work on my PhD, he said he was no longer accepting PhD students. He, was, he had just retired. But, you know, Ron was an amazing guy, and he, he was very open to talking to me about topics. And we often went to lunch and had, had coffee together. And during one of these conversations, he mentioned Peter Harrison. Uh, I read some of uh, Peter's work while in grad school, uh, loved it, and uh, went ahead and picked up the rest of his work and uh, read it all. And Ron told me that Peter had uh, just went back to Australia. Peter was uh, the director of the Science and Religion Center at Oxford, but he had uh, stepped away from that position. He went back to Australia at the University of Queensland, uh, where he's originally from, and that he was accepting PhD students. So I gave Peter a call. We talked about topics and he encouraged me to apply. And, and so I did, uh, right? Uh, I got a, a ride, full ride scholarship to do a PhD at UQ. And uh, initially I wanted to work on narratives of the scientific revolution among enlightenment thinkers, uh, especially the uh, French philosophes. But Peter suggested a, what we all thought was a narrower topic. Uh, it turned out to be something else. Uh, we decided to, I decided to work on the conflict thesis and that's what I did for my dissertation. Yeah, thanks James. And that's of course, we'll get into that um, with your book, which is directly on the conflict thesis. Um, so thanks for sharing your story. That um, is, is really helpful background. It strikes me that you spent a lot of time outside the US, um, yeah. both in South Korea and Australia. Um, do you have any, maybe, just give us um, a couple things, maybe one from Korea, one from Australia. What, 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 uh, what do you remember fondly? What struck you about both of those cultures? Well, in South Korea, we chose to uh, teach English in the countryside. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people decide to do it in Seoul or Daegu or Busan, one of the major cities in South Korea. But we decided to do it in the countryside because we want to experience real Korean culture, right? And uh, another reason why is because we wanted to be nearby, nearby mountains. Uh, we found out later that like 80% of Korea is mountainous. So no matter where you are in Korea, you can, you can find a mountain to hike. But being in the countryside was a little difficult because uh, at one point, um, we were the only native English speakers in the entire town. So we got a lot of stares and a lot of giggles and people trying to talk to us. And the only way we could communicate was you know, body language and, and gesture. So um, that was an interesting time, but we learned, we learned about a lot about Korean culture and uh, really uh, loved Korean cuisine. Um, and we, we still have a hard time finding a great Korean restaurant here in Madison. There are some good ones, but it's not like what you would get in Korea. Um, in Australia, um, Australia was very interesting. The summers were, were kind of unbearable. They uh, were extremely humid, extremely hot. And you'd, you'd uh, this is Brisbane area. This is kind of Northern Territory in, in Australia and in the state of Queensland. So uh, get that subtropical uh, weather coming in and you 
you stay outside for like 10 minutes and you're just drenched. You're, you're like swimming in it. So, um, but the winters were fantastic. You can't complain about uh, 70 degree winters. So it's, uh, uh, my wife loved it. My wife grew up in the Philippines, so she loved the weather there, but I had a, a little bit of a hard time adjusting, but. That's great. Well, um, you gave us a, an interesting sort of path through actually a lot of the key players in the uh, history of science, historiography, the, the record of the scholarship. What, how would you define yourself as a historian? Like what, what do you, if someone asked you sort of, what are you more than just a historian? How would you answer that? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a hard question to answer because it's something that I'm still formulating. I subscribe to the principle of what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity, the kind of sort, sort of shared theological commitments that have defined the parameters of Christianity since the early church. But I believe the Christian faith actually can serve as a legitimate foundation for historical thinking and writing. An academic historian who is also a Christian resists, or at least is supposed to resist, at least, you know, the, the, the iron cage of mere professionalism. You know, our, our careers are not just uh, a career, it's something more. You know, the Christian historian or Christian scholar in general should see their kind of professional identity as something conditioned in a serious and holistically Christian way. So in an important sense, Christian scholars have um, a bit of an advantage uh, in approaching their work, sort of this built-in resistance to corrosive doctrines like nihilism and, and relativism and, and positivism, materialism, rationalism, all other forms of reductionism. So uh, Christian faith kind of equips the scholar to appreciate both the value of conventional standards of evidence gathering and at the same time their inherent limitations. But I think there's an additional way that uh, Christian faith may strengthen the enterprise of historical scholarship. And our faith requires us to take an account uh, of the past as something real, right? As something in which one is unavoidably embedded in, uh, and to which one is profoundly connected as something that has a certain measure of authority. You know, the Christian faith orders our lives around revelations and events that occurred at least two millennia ago. Uh, it is a religion that places an enormous value upon the authority of the past. Now, the past really has something essential, something life-giving to teach us. So in this sense, remembering the past uh, can be an act of love, you know, an act of honoring the past, a sort of a spiritual thing that draws us toward a fuller understanding of the communion of the saints. You know, I, I'm reminded by uh, a letter that uh, theologian and historian Philip uh, Schaeff once wrote to a young, a young historian. He wrote and he's told him that church history is the history of Christ and his gospel and its saving mission. And next to God's word, the richest storehouse of instruction, wisdom, and comfort. You know, the task of the Christian historian and the Christian scholar more broadly is to think of our responsibilities uh, to the liberal arts uh, less as an academic task, but as an act of deeply meditative devotion. You know, if God has revealed himself in history, in the universe, through his son, in the fullness of time, our calling to study history uh, may begin to feel more and more like a sacred assignment, like a spiritual practice. 
So my, my, I try to remind myself my, in my teaching and my scholarship and my service to the academic community is, is the belief that the teacher must be more than a scholar. He must be, he or she must be a servant, someone who can combine scholarship and teaching with humility under the cross. The Christian scholar knows perhaps more than most that we can only know in part, right? And we see in the mirror darkly and history in the Christian views about human beings who are like God, right? We're made in the image of God, yet we are habitual wrongdoers. We have this immense creative potential and possibility, yet we are enmeshed in a web of circumstance and we are we are shapers, yet also victims of, of the history. So the, through these tensions in, of human life, uh, God works out his purposes, right? And that he will bring to a triumphant conclusion. So uh, a Christian view of history is one ultimately of, of hope. So uh, my own understanding of the human condition uh, in the light of the Christian faith convinces me that the classroom is not simply the place where we demonstrate our academic prowess. It is where we encounter other broken human beings. So the Christian scholar is not just called to, to teach or to transfer knowledge, but also to encourage uh, toward, toward growth, a godliness, and character development. You're, you're a scholar, but also you, you have sort of a pastoral role as well. That is a great uh, summary of, of what Christian scholarship can be. And it reminds me of other Christian scholars who have tried to tread this path as well. People like Mark Knoll and George Marsden, mm -hmm. also historians mm -hmm. who have written on this. One question I always have, I've never asked them this, uh, haven't had the courage, but I'll ask you because you're sitting here with me. What drew you to then study the 19th century? Not those events you talk about in the past, the, not the New Testament uh, period, the first century. What is it about the period that you study 19th and 20th century religious and religious history, intellectual history that made it sort of a priority in your mind that, that that's what you need to focus on. The 19th century was a century of transformation. There was a lot of things going on. Uh, scholars usually call it the long 19th century because so much was happening. But, you know, if I, if I'm honest, I would say that, you know, my own supervisor kind of threw me this, this gift, right? And it's actually, this happens quite a bit, I think, with us academics. But uh, like I said, I wanted to work on the, the 18th century, the Enlightenment period. But he said, go, go to the 19th century and look at um, these two guys, uh, John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White, where most scholars say where that's where the conflict thesis uh, had its start. So in a nutshell, the conflict thesis is the, the idea that science and religion are fundamentally in conflict, right? Uh, always have been, always will be. This is sort of a history of, of war. In that sense, it is a historical argument. Now, most proponents of the conflict thesis maintain if you look back in history, uh, particularly Christian history, but not exclusively Christian history, if you look back at every moment in the advance of science uh, or new learning, religion has attempted to oppose, uh, oppress, or deny that, that progress. You have notions like Christianity was responsible for the demise of uh, ancient science, that medieval Christians taught the world was flat, uh, that the medieval church uh, prohibited human dissection. Galileo 
was imprisoned and tortured for advancing Copernicanism. And you know, up to the 19th century, you have this idea that uh, Christian theologians opposed Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and so on. The list, the list is endless. And um, conflict thesis has many supporters today. Uh, I think we naturally think of the the new the new atheists, the so-called new atheists. You know, Dawkins and Harris and uh, Hitchens and uh, as its chief representatives. But so so really so is Hollywood. Um, the media, you have news networks, popular history books, even academic textbooks promote this view of, of conflict in one way or another. And so it's really kind of part of our self, modern self-understanding. It's very much part of the secular age. Uh, in some ways, it's, it's essential to it. But historians of science and religion, of course, have turned this narrative on its head. They have been rejecting such simplistic views for about a century, really. And quite remarkably, they trace the origins of this view to the 19th century, specifically to the Anglo-American writers. So it's apparently a recent idea. Um, and uh, because they trace it to the 19th century, that's where I ended up focusing most of my, my research on. Yeah, and I would, I would guess that the conflict thesis in the most popular sort of uh, simplistic version is something that almost everyone in American society, at least, has encountered in some way, and um, and particularly Christians. I think this is yeah. often one of the the stumbling blocks for Christians who uh, Christian students who go to uh, universities that have a different culture than than what they grew up in. And as you said, Hollywood depictions of science and religion sort of really play into the conflict thesis. Yeah, you know, I, well. I didn't mention it. I didn't mention it, but you're, you're you're right that in many churches the conflict thesis is promoted. Uh, you have you have different sides of it. The the Hollywood side, you have the the academic side, but you also have the church who who are working with this kind of simplistic understanding of science and religion. So yeah, they even get it in church really. Right. And that's that's one of the you talk about how historians, the scholars have really been attempting to, to sort of push back against that narrative, you know, for 100 years. It's just it's just like this thankless task of every generation of scholars to, yeah. to continually uh, sometimes being an, an annoyance, but also just this sort of voice saying it's more complicated than that. And, you know, it, your mileage varies uh, in each generation how far that uh, that that, that, that uh, scholarship goes, I guess. Um, right, right. Great. Well, that that gets us right into your book, uh, Science, Religion and the Protestant Tradition, and it came out last year with the um, press of the University of Pittsburgh. And mm -hmm. I had the pleasure of reading it last year and, oh, re and rereading it just uh, in these last few weeks. It's uh, it's really a work of scholarship. I thanks James for the scholarship. It's it's very uh, well done and very comprehensive in its treatment of um, the origins of the conflict thesis uh, or the the supposed origins. I should say that's part of the deconstructing what what is meant by the conflict thesis and right. where does this come from? Because I think as we get back to that that major narrative that's in our culture about the conflict thesis, I think uh, most people would assume it goes back even that type of talking about it, that, that tension between religion and science, most people would, I assume, think it goes back at least to the Enlightenment, um, if mm -hmm. not all the way back to sometime much earlier than that. Yeah. Um, but what you show is it's a really a, a late 19th century creation. The two people you really focus on are, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, 
uh, two men, John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White. Most of us have likely never heard of those names uh, before, though their ideas have had a lot of currency uh, since Mm -hmm. their time, or at least I think we'll get into this, but not exactly their ideas, but versions of their ideas that other Mm -hmm. people pick up. Um, So if you could just give us a quick primer on who Draper and White were, I think that'll get us uh, started here. Yeah, so um, these uh, Anglo-American writers that scholars speak about, John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White, um, Draper was actually born in England. Uh, He studied chemistry and medicine at University College London, known back then as London University, which was kind of established in the 1820s. His father uh, died almost as soon as, as he started his studies, though. Um, so he, after completing them, he emigrated to the U.S. Um, he had ancestors living in Virginia for some time at that point, uh, and he completed his MD. And he established himself as a leading scientist very quickly. He was very well respected. He he taught at a couple of different schools before becoming head of chemistry at New York University in the 1830s. He was also known for his photochemistry um, and is thought to be the first person to take a photograph of the human face, that being his sister, Dorothy Draper. He was also uh, one of the earliest to practice astrophotography. Um, One of the earliest pictures of the moon uh, was taken by Draper. Um, But Draper soon gave up chemistry and science in general for history. He, He is most well known for his Uh, This is the title, History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science. Pretty straightforward (laughs) title, huh? Uh, It was published in 1874. Uh, In it, Draper claimed that the history of science was a, quote, a narrative of the conflict of two contending powers, the expansive force of the human intellect on the one side and the compression (laughs) arising from traditionary faith and human interest on the other. Uh, He went on to explain that faith is in its nature unchangeable, stationary. Science is progressive, and because of that, eventually a a divergence between them or a conflict between them must take place. Andrew Dixon White was never a scientist. He was actually a man of literature. Uh, He was born in New York right around the time Draper and his family were making their way to America from England. White's parents believed he was destined for the pulpit. Uh, His father, a successful businessman and banker, sent him to an Episcopalian college, but White found the curriculum at that college uh, completely uninspired. He actually ran away from the school and demanded to be sent to Yale College. He sort of had a a falling out with his father over it, but his father um, ultimately relented and sent him to Yale to study history and English literature. And after college, he went on this grand three-year European tour. He visited Oxford and Cambridge, spent some time studying in France and Berlin, and then several months exploring, backpacking, if you will, Switzerland, Austria, Italy, before coming back home to do postgraduate work at Yale. In 1857, uh, at the remarkable age of 25, he was appointed history professor at the University of Michigan. It's quite a feat. He often complained in his diary of not being taken seriously because he had such a young face. His students didn't take him seriously. But 
At the outbreak of the Civil War, though, he resigned his post and was unexpectedly nominated and elected for New York State Senate. It was during this time that he met Ezra Cornell, who had made a fortune in the telegraph business, and together they founded Cornell University. He became its first president, but White was sort of an absentee president as he had a number of diplomatic appointments, first in Santo Domingo, then in Berlin and Russia. He eventually resigned his presidency in 1885 to work exclusively on research and writing. Uh, he even contemplated running for the US presidency at one point. So White was a very politically minded reformer. Uh, before all that though, he was known for his battlefields of science lecture in 1869, in which he traced quote, the great sacred struggle for the liberty of science. And in this lecture, he reviewed one by one the battles, the so-called battles fought in astronomy, chemistry, anatomy, geology. You know, he took this lecture and expanded it into a book in 1876. Uh, it's entitled simply The Warfare of Science. And then after resigning from Cornell, he spent decades expanding this original lecture even further, which eventually turned into this two volume masterpiece, uh, a history of the warfare of science with theology in Christendom, published in 1896, kind of a mouthful. So according to historians of science, Draper and White sort of set the terms of debate. Although, as you said, few cite them today or have ever really heard of, heard of them, most who claim there is some sort of conflict between science and religion usually follow one or more of the narratives or episodes set out in their, in their books. Um, but in my own book, uh, uh, I, I don't think that's quite right. I, in, in my book, I offer uh, 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 a more, I guess, a more nuanced, a new, a new perspective. Yeah, and sort of a, a revisionist take on, on that origin on that, on that thesis of where the origin of the conflict comes from, yeah. you know, as, as you were talking, one of the things that struck me was Ezra Cornell, uh, I believe you, you mentioned in your book, he was a Quaker yeah. by, yeah. by background. And I believe Johns Hopkins was as well, the founder of Johns Hopkins university. So there's just an interesting sort of religious history there of, of right. um, really rich Quakers uh, finding some of our major universities um, in the late 19th century. Right. And because Cornell was a, a Quaker, he, d he didn't like money very much. You know, he made a fortune, but he was he was looking for ways to get rid of it. And then he met White and White proposed to him, let's build a university together. And he thought that was a great idea. Yeah, that's fascinating. Sort of how religious, economic and education history come together um, mm -hmm. and really shape the world we have now, uh, at least the way we talk. One of the things that you do that uh, I think is pretty uh, interesting and, and part of that revision that you're doing is you're looking, as you talk about it, at their writings as primary rather than secondary sources. Yeah. Uh, so what, yeah. what do you mean by those terms? I think for historians, those are very common terms. For others, it might be, you need a little clarification. What do you mean by that? And, and how do you do that in the book? Yeah, I mean, simply put, you know, when you're looking at, at a primary source, you're looking at the primary source to reflect what is actually going on at that time. We're not just looking to debunk the, the narratives in uh, the episodes or in, in, in the text, but you're trying to understand the, the, the text in its context, when it was written, why it was written. So um, 
know, my argument takes a little bit to flesh out, so so bear with me. I mean, the reason the reason being is that no one has really done this kind of work before. There's there's a lot of baggage that needs to be sort of like cleared away before we can really understand what what's going on in in the narratives. Um, you know, m many historians, for example, think that Draper in particular had something against the Roman Catholic Church, um, and no doubt he did, uh, <laughs> but so did everyone else at the time. Anti-Catholic sentiment was at its height in the late 19th century, and particularly in America. Um, so when I think historians mention that Draper was anti-Catholic, I feel like it doesn't really tell us a whole lot. A lot of people were anti-Catholic. It doesn't really tell us what inspired him or, or why he wrote what he did. Um, in terms of White, historians argue that religious criticism of his beloved Cornell University sort of set him off. But White had already formulated his views prior to founding Cornell University. He was actually teaching this narrative or parts of this narrative to undergraduate students at the University of Michigan. So you, know, you have this well-rehearsed, uh, easy explanations uh, that sometimes historians give they actually, they, they fail because they sort of ignore what Draper and White actually said they were doing. Um, it, it's, for example, it is often mentioned, but sort of uh, and uh, left unanalyzed that Draper's history of the conflict was largely a condensed version of previously published work. Uh, most importantly, Draper had published his History of the Intellectual Development of Europe in 1863. This was a two-volume work published nearly a decade before his History of Conflict. And in, in this book, he made a crucial distinction that historians have, have forgotten or, or really kind of ignored um, in discussing the so-called paganization of Christianity under Emperor Constantine. Draper distinguished between Christianity and what he called ecclesiastical organizations. Uh, the former, he wrote, is a gift of God. The latter are the product of human exigencies and human invention. So Draper is saying that Christianity is a gift of God. Uh, it's a blessing. But ecclesiastical institutions, the church, is, is a product of human invention. And because of that, open to criticism, or if need be, to condemnation. Now, he argued that the paganization of Christianity had resulted in, quote, the tyranny of theology over thought, tyranny of theology over thought. And he declared those who had known what religion was in the apostolic days might look with boundless surprise at what was now engrafted upon it, what was passing under its name. So uh, Draper is sort of taking this kind of pure primitism view of, of what Christianity was. Um, even his notorious history of conflict under closer inspection, he continues to make these distinctions. He, he argued that he would only consider the orthodox or extremist views and not the moderate ones. He, he even expressed concern that traditionary faith was leading the so-called intelligent classes to give up on religion altogether. Now, his narrative, in, in short, was intended to show that the decline of religious faith was a direct consequence of a politicized, or what he called materialized, Christianity, not science. 
And, you know, White shared much of the same sentiments, actually, in his historical narrative. History showed, according to White, that the interference with science in the supposed interest of religion, no matter how conscientious such interference may have been, has resulted in the direst evils, both to religion and science. So White is, White is doing something very interesting here. He's, he's separating religion from theology. And by separating religion from theology, White denounced that the most mistaken of all mistaken ideas, and this is coming directly from him, was a conviction that religion and science are enemies. Now, he, he argued that science had conquered dogmatic theology, but it will go hand in hand with religion. You know, the whole point of his narrative, he later wrote in his autobiography, which was, I think, published in 1918, the whole point of his narrative was to strengthen religious teachers by enabling them to see some of the evils in the past, which, for the sake of religion itself, they ought to guard against in the future. This is coming directly from his autobiography. So, in other words, both Draper and White were trying to find possible ways to reconcile science and religion, not promote their conflict or their warfare. And you know, interestingly enough, many of their early readers, and you see this in their private correspondence, you see this in the periodical press, and newspaper, magazine reviews, academic journal reviews, they also believed that Draper and White were seeking a reconciliation between science and religion. In particular, a number of religiously liberal magazines on both sides of the Atlantic viewed Draper and White as an entirely, quote, Protestant project. And this Protestant emphasis, uh, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later, but this, this Protestant emphasis is really uh, clearly spelled out in the criticism they received. Uh, perhaps some of the most perceptive readers came from the Catholic tradition, unsurprisingly. A reviewer for the Catholic World Magazine, for instance, accused Draper, quote, of repeating and multiplying the old time-worn, oft-refuted, and ridiculous stories which stain the pages of long-forgotten Protestant controversialists. And the same accusation was leveled at White as well. So here's the rub. And their proposals were, were not particularly new. What they, what, what they essentially did was consolidate a number of narratives that were already in circulation, that were commonplace, particularly among Protestants, Protestant theologians, Protestant historians, men and women of science, the conflict they spoke of was an internal one, one between contending Christian groups. The conflict or warfare in their view was not between science and religion, but between contending Protestant traditions. You have in one corner, sort of the new theology emerging uh, from liberal Protestantism, which de-emphasized scripture, dogmatism, institutionalism, and the like. In the other corner, you have traditionary faith, creeds, doctrines, orthodoxy, and in general, a more, a more conservative uh, Protestantism. And, and it is, it's, it's here where things get really complicated and messy because neither liberal nor conservative Protestantism were, were anal, uh, monolithic, right? Uh, think of them as sort of separate streams, perhaps connected by outlets and inlets and 
Yeah, they're, they're both pro part of this kind of liberal Protestant um, uh, tradition, but they're separate traditions. Like, like I said, even within liberal Protestantism or conservative Protestantism, there are multiple, multiple streams. You know, and Draper was focusing on one and, Dra and, and White was on the other. For Draper, he, he advocated a return to a, a pure, more rational, Christianity and this idea, if anyone's wondering, comes from folks like Francis Bacon. You see this later with the English deists and who advocated for the same position, and, and folks like even the philosopher John Locke or even Isaac Newton. All of them look back to the Protestant Reformation as the Reformation not only of religion, but science and natural philosophy. Draper seemed to depend on historians like Edward Gibbon. Uh, but he also worked. You also looked at the work of German Lutheran church historians Johann von Mosham, English clergyman uh, Conyers uh, Middleton, uh, William Walburton, and others. So, for his understanding of church history, and you see this clearly in his 1863 book, his understanding for church history, Draper relied almost entirely on Protestant historians. And the, the, the rhetoric, the negative view of, of the Roman Catholic Church, and the whole idea of the corruption of Christianity is coming from that tradition. Uh, he even sided with John Calvin's stoical austerity, uh, particularly his doctrine of predestination, because he believed that, quote, God has from all eternity decreed whatever comes to pass. So Draper here is, in a way, is conflating this this deterministic view of the laws of nature with Calvin's doctrine of predestination. Draper's hero ultimately was Unitarian minister and chemist Joseph Priestley. In one of his lectures to students, Draper tells them that, quote, we must not impute it to mental weakness that Priestley passed through so many religious beliefs before, before arriving at Unitarianism, but rather to the pursuit of truth. So, so clearly, Draper was no atheist. He, he looked back to a more rational religion found among 17th and 18th century uh, intellectuals who viewed this new, no, new knowledge as, of evidence of God's creative power. So it's almost looking back to a natural theology tradition. So in this sense, Draper can be firmly placed in this particular Protestant tradition. White was in the same liberal Protestant stream, but a different segment, I guess, or a different different course, because he did not look to the past. He looked rather to contemporary conceptualizations or reconceptualization of religion. You know, for white, religion is found in moral conscience, in intuition, in sentiment. And, and this definition of religion, uh, of course, is not new. Uh, it exemplified essential elements of the Romantic movement, which had, by the late 19th century, become sort of a central component of liberal Protestant thought. And uh, more than that, White loved Germany. Um, while studying in Berlin, he visited Wartburg Castle, where Luther was protected under uh, Prince Frederick. And in his diary, he talked about almost kind of communion, communion with uh, Luther's spirit, and how he sees Luther sort of like the man monks, the chief man monks. And while in Germany, he also studied under Leopold von Ranke. He was reading Lessing, he was reading, reading Goethe, he was reading Schellemacher, and other what historians have called mediating German theologians. And 
Lessing, for example, talked about the evolution of religion. He maintained that all faiths would one day lead to truth. No creed, no dogma was thus complete or final. Christianity was this ever-evolving thing like the rest of civilization. You know, White imbued this idea. He, it became part of his own worldview. And Schellemacher convinced him, moreover, that true religion is not found in doctrine or books or dogma, but intuition, feeling, the sort of inward witness of the heart. So if the, the, to summarize in just one sentence, Draper followed uh, a religion of the head, whereas White followed a religion of the heart. Right. And these were both within, I mean, comparatively speaking, uh, one a narrow tradition of liberal Protestantism, right? So there's right. even diversity within this one segment of Protestantism right. about uh, what is that pure religion? And then ultimately, how does science fit into that, that vision? Anyone listening can probably imagine terms like science and religion start to get fluid to some extent when you start moving into these different territories and and there's there's definitions and redefinitions happening um in this period of what is science and what is religion and how are they related yeah you know it was um i think it was an english mathematician and philosopher alfred north whitehead back in the 1930s he he warned he warned us that about approach the difficulty in approaching the subject of science and religion right in quotation marks uh, writing that although conflict uh, between science and religion is what naturally occurs to our minds when we think about the subject, uh, the true facts of the case are much more complex and refuse to be summarized in, in, in simple terms. And, and the terms in question, science and religion, according to Whitehead, have always been sort of in a state of continual development and, and flux. And, and we can see that in, in Draper and White how they not necessarily they themselves, but they were approaching different traditions that were defining religion and science in particular in particular ways. And it wasn't until the 1830s when the word scientist was first was first defined, right? No one used the word scientist before the 1830s. So this new idea of professionalism, you're no more you're no more the amateur natural philosopher, but you're a professional science in, a, in an institutional setting. That was occurring in the 19th century, and this kind of looser, diffusive definition of religion was also occurring. One can argue that it was occurring back in the 18th century, but I think it's in the 19th century where, where things got really um, kind of carried away, so to speak, when it comes to defining, defining the terms. That's great. So um, I do want to take a quick break here and mix it up for a couple minutes with just a, a speed round. This, this should be more fun. Um, okay. <laughs> let's pull out of, of the, uh, the narrative for a minute and a, a speed round of questions um, that are sort of personal and, uh, and professional. So just answer. You don't have to give, you know, full long answers just mm. to get, get to know you a little more. So, so the first one, how did you and your wife meet? Oh, well, we met at a church in Rockland, California, um, part of the greater Sacramento area. We were uh, at a, a barbecue. And I decided to, I was sort of an amateur astronomer back then, and I had a telescope. So I brought the, the telescope to the barbecue. We were having a barbecue in, in sort of the uh, Sierra uh, Nevada, the mountainous area, and, and brought out the telescope because Jupiter was uh, visible. Uh, and we I set up the, the telescope, and everyone was 
was looking through it and, and talking and I, I met her at that barbecue and then I started carpooling with her. I was giving her rides to church and to the other events and we just got to know each other and um, uh, we fell in love and we've been married since 2006. So it's been some time and it's been it's been great. Well, so the, the history of science just uh, intersects all the way back with the right. uh, the founding of your right. relationship too. Right. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and and this is a funny. It's a small world. My uh, my grandparents. Well, my uh, my grandparents did, and my aunt and uncle still do live in Rockland, uh, California. So I've been there really? many. Yeah, most summers um, growing up, we were in Rockland for a few weeks. So no kidding! Uh, wow, I yeah. didn't know that about you, Dan. That's great. <laughs> yeah, small world. Oh man. Okay, second question: uh, What is the worst four pay job? That you've ever had the worst what job for pay like something you oh. were actually like employed to do probably my first job my first job was working at a, a car wash <laughs> a <laughs> five-star car wash off, a, off of a five-star boulevard in rockland it was i think i was in my, my sophomore year or freshman year of high school and uh that summer i decided to work and only that summer. <laughs> so it, was, it was a quick job, only about two, three months, and then I decided to quit. So it was it was terrible. But when you're young, you can do terrible things. That's right. That's right. All right. Um, I, I I don't know this about you, James, if you're really into any sort of TV or, or movies or anything, but do you have a favorite piece of pop culture, something yeah. You, yeah. you're a fan of? Oh, well, this might turn viewers away, but I, I love dystopian <laughs> uh, sci-fi films and, 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 and shows. It's just interesting to, to see how writers come up with what's the end going to look like. So you have things like uh, The Walking Dead or uh, other TV shows that kind of narrate what, what the end of the world will look like and how people interact with each other. And I've always kind of been sci- uh, and, and interested in that kind of that kind of narrative. I don't know why it just appeals to me. Yeah, well, we, we do share that as, as someone, you know, I, I look a lot, I think a lot about eschatology and um, as, as sort of a formal theological study, but a lot of those dystopian cultural productions are sort of the eschatology of our culture, right? It's, it's different right, right. imaginings and it's, it's almost less interesting about the specific sequence of events, but more about the values underlying the vision of the, right. hor- the horrible future coming our way. Um, right. you know, right. um, very interesting. What's the most important book published in the history of science in the last 50 years? I think, I mean, the one that really played a role in, in, in my, my own life uh, was John Headley Brook, his uh, historical perspectives on science and religion. I, re- I recall coming into contact with that book, I believe it was published like in the 1990s, sometime in the 1990s, but at I came in contact with that book as an undergraduate at Davis. I, I recall my my supervisor, uh, Allison Kudair, mentioning him and that I should look up the book. So I found the book in the library, and it was a very distinctive looking book. It was it was black. It was the cover was all black, and it had this kind of neon green lettering for for the title. So it was kind of very eye catching. And I found it, and I started reading it, and I couldn't put it down. I just kept reading all the way through it in, in that library uh, at UC Davis. I found, uh, I can't remember now if I, I sat on the floor or, or if I found a, a chair or, or, or a desk, but I remember reading through that entire book in one day. And um, it was, and most, most, I think if you ask most historians of science and religion, they, they point to John Hedgewood Brook and how they, he impacted them and kind of started them 
uh, on this course. And I would, I would have to say he, he did the same thing for me. Fascinating. So you've done a lot of teaching and lecturing over the years. What's your favorite subject to teach or lecture about? You know, interestingly enough, the last few years, I've been spending a lot of time teaching biblical studies. You know, I, I guess it's not it's not that that interesting that I, that not not that that's surprising that I got into it because as a as a graduate from Trinity Evangelical School, the the Bible was very important, and we had a lot of biblical study courses at, at Trinity. So, um, you know, I felt uh, somewhat qualified to be teaching <laughs> teaching the subject, but I, I really enjoyed teaching um, sort of the historical context and background of of uh, not just the biblical the biblical writers, but uh, how the Bible was put together and how um, it's been interpreted over the years. So, I've, I've, and, you know, we'll talk a little bit about this later because it's, it's part of a, a new project that I'm working on, but I, I'd like to connect more the, uh, the rise of biblical criticism with the whole science religion debate, because I think it's, mm. it's a feature that historians of science have uh, mostly ignored but I think it's an important feature that they can't do without it. I mean, Draper and White were were very much influenced by the rise of, of higher criticism, biblical criticism in the 19th century, and that really reflects in how they redefined religion and their narratives. So I've really enjoyed teaching biblical studies, yeah. That's interesting, and that, that work you're talking about is is work that really requires training in biblical studies and in history um, and history of science in particular. So there's not a ton of people um, around who can do that work. So glad to hear that that's coming up. So mm. if you could just talk to us about some of the ways that the conflict thesis in the, during the lifetimes of Draper and White, but then also sort of uh, as we continue on, how they popularize these, this idea that there is a conflict between faith and science. Yeah. And, and then we'll talk a little about that relationship between scholarly discourse, which is really mm-hmm. what Draper and White were at the center of, and the more popular uh, discourse that where most people, I think, encounter ideas about the conflict thesis. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's a great question. And one of my, it was one of the guiding questions that I was trying to answer was who helped make the conflict thesis real? You know, how did Draper and White's ideas come to such prominence? And like all good detective stories, there is uh, there's a cast of characters, right? Uh, a central here, beside Draper and White, was a man named Edward Livingston uh, Humans. Humans uh, uh, was the the science editor of D. Appleton and Co., uh, the publishing empire in the 19th century, the huge publisher uh, in America. Humans um, uh, published promoted and defended uh, for an American audience, the work of Charles Darwin, Thomas uh, Henry Huxley, Darwin's so-called bulldog, uh, British physicist John Tyndall, um, evolutionary philosopher uh, Herbert Spencer, and many other uh, English and European scientists. And more importantly, humans was the key figure in disseminating and popularizing the narratives of Draper and White. Humans began publishing their work just as uh, British and American publishing was undergoing sort of a, a remarkable uh, communication revolution. He was at the forefront of this evolution, uh, revolution rather, uh, he establishing new international copyright agreements, uh, popularizing scientific knowledge, and his extremely successful uh, popular science monthly magazine. 
it's still around today, but it's not the same magazine. But uh, it was it was part of Human's work. And the other series that he he worked on was the International Scientific Series, which is, I think, uh, a seventy volume collection of the latest advances in science, and it was intended to reach a more global audience. And both projects uh, started in the eighteen seventies. Now, Humans was also a member of the Free Religious Association, Free Religious Association. Uh, in 1825, the American Unitarian Association was established to sort of promote a more humanistic or naturalistic Christology, or naturalistic interpretation of, of the person of Jesus. And uh, they also promoted a more rationalistic interpretation of scripture, a more optimistic view of human nature. But after the Civil War, controversy and schism emerged within the denomination, and some members decided that Unitarianism still harbored a kind of a residual orthodoxy. So uh, in 1867 in Boston, a free religious association was born, and it sought to promote the principles of free thought and moral philosophy without any kind of reference to institutional Christianity whatsoever. Um, it was composed sort of a, a diverse assortment of radical Unitarianisms, Unitarians, Universalists, Spiritualists, Transcendentalists, sort of scientific theists, and really just kind of disaffected religious minorities. Uh, the Free Religious Association advanced what can be called a new religion of humanity. According to its first constitution, it aspired to promote the interest of pure religion, again, that language is familiar, pure religion to encourage the scientific study of theology and to increase fellowship in spirit. And humans actually served as one of its vice presidents. In 1873, at its annual meetings, one of his annual meetings, he delivered an address entitled The Religious Work of Science, The Religious Work of Science. In the speech, humans announced that science, quote, science has long been regarded and is still widely believed to be the antagonist of religion. But the time has come, he proclaimed, when it will be accepted as its most powerful ally and best friend. So according to humans, science and religion are not mutually exclusive, quote, it is the office of science, he said, to explore the works of God religion deals with sentiments and emotions which go out toward that divine author. Science was knowledge of the order of nature, uh, the laws by which the order is governed, whereas religion was that feeling entertained toward the infinite being, the power, the cause, but whatever name you call it. You know, humans argue that men of science devote their lives to exploring the works of God. So in this sense, such work is religious work, he says. And as religious work, science has attained its grandest achievement, according to humans, in revealing and demonstrating the evolution or growth of religion. So whenever conflict has occurred, it not occurred between science and religion, but between theology and science. So humans shared a lot with Draper and White, their, their particular perspective. You know, men of science, he argued, have always faced opposition 
from theologians who claim to be authorized expounders of divine policy. These theologians insisted on a God who interrupts the natural order. But the Almighty, uh, humans claimed, has been vindicated by men of, men of science. They have shown that the wisdom of God is witnessed not in the violations, but in the perfection of, of his works. So in, in short, humans thought orthodoxy or dogmatism uh, must come to an end if religion is to grow and advance. He believed that the history of science demonstrated that only the progress of knowledge, uh, not only just the progress of knowledge, but the progress of religion. Uh, so he was sort of a tireless defender of the new theology and ideas of the religion of the future that was very popular among American liberal Protestants at that time. So in, in this sense, humans saw Draper and White and others like them as peacemakers. And he, he said so even in his popular Science Monthly. Uh, humans had in all his own editorial section where he commented on everything that he published in his magazine. And he often talked about Draper and White, but also Darwin and, and Tyndall and Huxley. And he referred to them as peacemakers. So whether or not humans and, and the writers he published were actual peacemakers, I think is beside the point for, for humans. Many uh, and many other uh, Protestant intellectuals, a separation of piety or religious feelings from uh, accepted creeds of orthodoxy provided the means of reconciling what they saw as discord between the new knowledge and, and ancient faith. So the same theologians who were adversaries of science were also adversaries of the progress of religious truth. Humans could therefore criticize the dogmatism he felt inhibited intellectual progress uh, without undercutting, quote unquote, religion. But unlike Draper and White, you know, again, Draper looked to the past, kind of a rational Christianity. So he's still within that Protestant uh, tradition. Uh, White looked to new definitions of religion that involved more uh, kind of romantic ideas. And that's still within the Protestant tradition. But for White, he rejected any kind of doctrinal beliefs of traditional Christianity. He, he, he did not believe Protestantism would bring about a final recon reconciliation. Now, for, for him, the times required a new theology, a freer religion than even what the most liberal Protestants could, could offer. Yeah, and so Humans is taking this critique uh, that Draper and White have made much further than they would have mm -hmm. made themselves. Mm -hmm. And then he's, I mean, it, it seems to me pretty ironic that historians look at these two as, as White and Draper as sort of the instigators of the war or, or of the conflict. And yet humans is defining them as peacemakers. Like he, th those are two right. contrasting right. Um, right. Uh, ways to see them as, as making peace or starting a war. It's uh, very hard uh, to summarize then the next hundred years um, uh, quickly. Uh, and, and your book is a monograph. You're focusing on sort of this particular moment doing this intense research on these two, uh, these two men. And uh, there's a lot of archival research that got, went into the project as well. But could you just sketch for us um, how we get from the generation of Japer and White to the more, uh, the more recent history and, and even to the contemporary moment that we're in now? Yeah, I, I wish I had a uh, I had the opportunity to, to to talk a little bit about that, but the the book was already getting pretty lengthy, and the publisher 
just wanted me to wrap it up by the conclusion. So I talk a little bit about this uh, in the conclusion. In, in a way, Draper and White are guilty um, for the conflict thesis. They're guilty because they, they failed to communicate their ideas more clearly, but perhaps maybe at the same time, it's, it's just the very nature of the idea itself. And, and Draper, for example, never used footnotes. So it's kind of extremely difficult to trace what influenced him. Uh, White had the opposite problem. He, he seemed to cite everything. So some historians argue that White fabricated some of his footnotes. And I don't know, I don't know if I buy that because you know, all ideas come from somewhere, right? So uh, the, the, whatever he fabricated, if he fabricated, he, he got this idea from someone else, from, from some other scholar that he, he cites. It just kind of takes time and, and discipline to, to find them. So, but another reason why Draper and White are often misunderstood, I think, is that their ideas were indeed appropriated by secularists, free thinkers, and atheists at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Perhaps the most important secularist uh, to have appropriated Draper's historical narrative, for example, was a guy named Joseph McCabe. Joseph McCabe. And Joseph McCabe was a, a Roman Catholic monk who had abandoned his religious beliefs around the 1890s. Uh, he was a prolific author. He wrote something like 200 books on science, history, and religion. Uh, he was an advocate of atheism, and he frequently forecast the doom of Christianity in light of modern science. And in 1927, he, he published a little book entitled The Conflict Between Science and Religion. Hmm, I wonder where he got that idea. So McCabe essentially uh, repeated Draper's narrative, almost, ex almost the exact same stories, the exact same case studies. But unlike Draper, McCabe gleefully cheered on the decay of religion, the death of religion. Uh, historians of the 21st century, he argued, will look back with amusement at those men of science and theologians who tried to find some kind of reconciliation between science and religion. You know, Christianity, for McCabe, was the most deadly opponent of scientific progress. So uh, what's actually in really interesting about McCabe's book is that the majority of it is not against uh, conservatives or the orthodox, but it's sort of a diatribe against progressive religion. He repeated the same arguments that conservative and orthodox opponents of Draper had used against him. So he claimed that, that the liberal Protestantism, and this is his own words, was living in the land of bunk, living in the land of bunk. According to McCabe, those liberal theologians who reinterpreted traditional religious beliefs, wittingly or unwittingly, attacked the very foundations of Christianity. And this is McCabe's position. So at the beginning of the 20th century, you have rationalists, free thinkers, secularists, atheists, who seized upon the historical narratives of Draper, of White, and other liberal Protestant historians and theologians, and adopted them as weapons in their campaign to extinguish all religion. So they used that weapon uh, against everyone. And here's a real irony, because uh, the secular progressivism or humanism of skeptics like McCabe deeply informed the fledging discipline of the history of science uh, as it developed in the early 20th century. I point out in my book that George, George Sarton, I, the so-called father 
of the discipline had appropriated the general outlines of Draper and White without any of their religious nuance. Uh, Sarton put it this way. He said, he wrote that the history of science is the story of an endless struggle against superstition, an error. Sarton believes that men of science are the heroes fighting for truth against the forces of darkness. Uh, these enemies are religion and superstition in, in every shape and form. You know, so my own discipline started with a much more simplistic and kind of almost generic interpretation of science and religion that derived ironically from Draper and White. But actually Draper and White had a more nuanced perspective than the original history of science discipline like the way George Sarton had it. So Sarton inaugurated the teaching of the history of science of places like Harvard. Uh, he had planned this comprehensive nine volume history of science. He was only able to publish three volumes of it. But he also founded the flagship uh, history of science journal, ISIS. So in the history of science courses he was teaching at, at Harvard, he actually drew upon White's history of the warfare. So it's kind of an ironic twist in the end there. Right. And, and so taking that, so his, you know, his narrative then is embedded in the publishing world, in institutions where it's being taught to generation after generation. And right. uh, as we know, that's sort of how the conversation shifts in a culture, right, is, is right. through those institutions and these new ways of talking about uh, topics. So what, what's sort of on the horizon for you in terms of uh, another big project or, or another topic that you want to tackle in this area? Yeah, I think two, two in particular. Uh, I would like to write a book, uh, as I mentioned earlier, on the rise of biblical criticism and, and the science-religion debate. And I actually have an article coming out uh, with uh, the journal Zygon. It's a, a science and religion journal. It talks about how White, in particular, spent a lot of time on the rise of biblical criticism. And in fact, the very last chapter of his, of his masterpiece, uh, the longest chapter, of his masterpiece is all about uh, what he said. It was the scientific, the rise of the scientific interpretation of the Bible. And, mm. and in that chapter, he, he talks about the rise of biblical criticism. And I just thought it was very interesting that almost uh, no historian of science has written about White's longest chapter, the final and longest chapter of his book, which was all about biblical criticism. So I have an article coming out that talks about that, but that could really be expanded into a book, honestly, because you know, there's so many, so many, so many figures and so many different ideas coming coming from uh, the biblical criticism. And, and the argument, a lot of times, from is that you know the biblical criticism really started off as a, a kind of a polemic against orthodox thinking. Uh, the whole a lot of these uh, early biblical uh, critics, they did biblical criticism because they wanted to attack orthodoxy. But um, you have other biblical critics who, who used it just to get a bit better understanding of what the Bible is saying. So you have two, these two different movements and they're, they're competing with each other. And the, I mean, the, especially the way I kind of redefine or re, uh, redefine the history of, of science and religion or redefine the history of the conflict thesis, that narrative really plays well. It kind of parallels what's happening with Draper and White in, in their own thinking. So I would really write, want, to, want to write that book and uh, we'll see if I have time for it this year. But there's another project about the rise of the modern self. And uh, it's kind of a very popular theme. There's been uh, a few books out that came out the last year or two about 
uh, the rise of uh, modernity. And I don't think I've seen any historian of science talk about sort of a Christian anthropology or different interpretations of anthropology and how it plays a role in the science religion debate as well. So I'd like to write that, but that's just kind of an idea in my head. I haven't really, I haven't really uh, started the research for that yet. Both sound very, very interesting and, and obviously connected to this work that you've already done. So just uh, concluding here, I thought we could talk a little about how the church or people, at least in the upper house community, um, can think about faith and science differently. Um, do you have any particular ways you hope Christians will read and understand what you're writing? Yeah, um, it's a good question. Uh, it's a hard question to answer because, you know, it's, it, I'm still trying to think of it myself. Uh, you know, a long time ago, uh, Ian uh, Barber came up with his sort of fourfold topology of conflict, independence, dialogue, and integration in, in talking about uh, science and religion. I still think those are they're useful, but I think the main issue with them is it still kind of relies on the categories science and religion or science and faith. And those aren't very helpful, I think, it, simply because historically that wasn't the issue, right? It wasn't the issue for Draper and White. And I think it's still not the issue in some way, even though we, we continue to talk about faith and science or religion and religion and science, never really been about these abstract notions of science and religion. It's always been about worldviews, contending theology. So thinking, thinking about it in that sense and exploring the history of the conflict thesis is really kind of an exercise in the history of religious thought, in this case, Christian thought. And here, I think a more helpful approach is what the neo-Orthodox theologian Richard Niebuhr called the enduring problem, the enduring problem. And this is sort of the many-sided debate about the relations of Christianity and civilization, which is by no means a new one, right? Christian perplexity in this area has been around from the very beginning and has been with us from, from the very beginning. So Niebuhr had five categories, right? He had Christ against culture, Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ and culture and paradox, and Christ the transformer of culture. In, in the history of Christianity and science, we see various formulations of these categories, perhaps even combinations in, in, in play. So I think one way to move forward uh, is in, in a way to, to look to the early church uh, and I think we might find some examples. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of the letter to Dionysus, which was written around 130, uh, kind of the late second century. It was a, an, an apologetical letter to a student of Christianity, sort of encouraging them to defend Christian belief against criticism. In this letter, the author writes, Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor customs which they observe, for they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked, by, marked out by any singularity. They're inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and they're following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. They display to us 
sort of a wonderful and confessedly striking uh, method of life, method of life. Now they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners, they, as citizens, they, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as, as foreigners. Now, every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of, of strangers. So what makes this mode of life striking according to the author of the letter is uh, sort of the scorn of death, the, the love, the meekness, the humility, uh, which has uh, been infused into it by God through his redeeming as well as his creative word. And Christians are just like everyone else. And yet what is unique about us, or at least what's supposed to be, is this humility and, and this love for one another. And this, this idea is also picked up uh, by St. Augustine, uh, perhaps the most influential figure in, in the early church. And I think Upper House is doing something about, uh, has done something with St. Augustine. And you guys have another course on, on St. Saint Augustine. So, you know, St. Augustine had this notion that all truth is God's truth. And I think that remains relevant to Christians and science today. We are, we are called to bring all human learning, research, and discovery to bear on these fundamental questions, these big questions. Uh, St. Augustine also sought to defend the integrity of, of Genesis, the integrity of scripture against other philosophers who, who criticized it as legend or irrational. Uh, he argued in response that human language is tricky and to understand the meaning of words, we must be careful to discern their, their various distinctions. Uh, and when it comes to the biblical text, we must be attentive not only to a divine source, but also the human element. St. Augustine believed we become obstacles to salvation, obstacles to salvation to, to others when we equate uh, scientific theory with the meaning of, of the Bible. And really not much uh, has changed today. The Augustinian solution to conflict is humility, uh, both in the interpretation of nature and the interpretation of, of scripture. Uh, but more than that, for St. Augustine, Christ is the transformer of, of culture, right? In the sense that he redirects, uh, reinvigorates, and kind of regenerates the life of, of humanity and, and expressed in all his works. He sees this work as fundamentally good, but at present, uh, perverted and corrupted. So the, the good nature of man has been corrupted and his culture has become perverse in such a fashion. And, and that corrupt nature produces preserved culture and vice versa, it goes back and forth, right? Man as a creature is made to obey, to, to worship, to glorify and depend on the goodness which made him. According to St. Augustine, our sin lies in turning away from God to ourselves. So, in, or some inferior values from, from this root sin arise other disorders in the human life. Disorder extends to every phase of culture. We have wars, social injustice, dominion over others, and even over creation. But by humbling human pride and detaching man from himself, on the one hand, by revealing God's love and attaching man to this one goodness. Christ restores 
what has been corrupted and redirects what has been perverted. This is the Christ transforms culture that Niebuhr is talking about. So in this Augustinian sense, the life of reason, the intellectual life is reoriented and redirected by giving, by being, it's given a new principle. It's redeemed reason begins with faith in God and love of the order which God has put in all creation. There is room within this approach, I think, for the thought that mathematics, logic, the natural sciences, even the fine arts and technology all become instruments of that new love of God that rejoices in the whole of creation and that serves all creatures. So everything, I dare say, including the political life, is, is subject to that great conversion that ensues when God makes a new beginning for, for us. And there has been a host of Christian thinkers who have thought in this way. So we have plenty of examples. Um, we just need to look for them. Calvin, uh, John Calvin was very much like St. Augustine. He, he looked at the very vocations of, of men and women and as activities in which they may express their faith and love and may glorify God and their calling. Ultimately, the gospel promises and makes possible this transformation of humanity and all its nature and culture into uh, a kingdom of God. And so we don't have to redefine Christianity or redefine religion as Draper and White or humans did in order to find reconciliation. I, I, they started with themselves, which is for the Christian, absolutely the wrong place to begin, right? And what I think we need is, in the end, sort of a theological retrieval, uh, kind of, really kind of an ancient one. Uh, the, the present is, is too polarized, too, too, too confused, too dishonest, really. And in this sense, I'm also reminded of Swiss Reformed theologian Karl Barth. He, he observed near the end of his life that in order to serve the community of today, theology itself must be rooted in the community of yesterday. Thanks, James. We might say that a proper understanding of the origins of the conflict thesis and the relationship between the Christian faith and science, whatever particular way we define those, is, is at least one small step on our way toward that more Augustinian understanding of, of the world and of God. So thank you for your book. Thank you for the time today. And uh, ultimately, thank you for your words to our audience. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.